How did Donald Trump get so rich? This is Industry Focus. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. I'm Christine Hargis, and I've got John Maxfield on the line with me as usual. And I'm very excited to welcome foolish financial analyst Gabby LaPera to the show. Gabby, glad to have you here. Really excited to be here. So we've got an awesome episode for you guys today, as we're going to be digging into the wonderfully interesting man that is Donald Trump. Just to be very clear from the start, we wanted to do this episode from a totally nonpartisan stance and give a really objective look at who this man is, what's his history, and how he's accomplished everything that he has. So as you're listening, keep in mind that even though each of us has our own opinions about the political side of Trump, we're doing our best to remove that from the equation and focus on Trump from a business perspective. Also, along the line of disclaimers, even though I usually save this for the end of the episode, I'll remind our listeners now that any stocks that end up getting mentioning in the episode could be in my or John's or Gabby's personal portfolios, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against them. So as always, do your own research. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. And so with that, let's dive right on in. How did the Trump name come to be what it is today? So if you look back in the Trump family history, there are three really important pieces. The first is the Great Depression, when Fred Trump, which is Donald Trump's father, started building large developments of uh, single-family homes in the Brooklyn area. And he did that with... This guy ended up being considered the Henry Ford of home building, right? It's exactly right. He built a lot of homes for kind of the mass consumer. So that's how he really broke in. The second piece was during World War II, when the government shifted a lot of our resources to supporting the military. Fred Trump then went and built developments around military bases. And then the third really important piece was a post-World War II housing boom in multifamily real estate, in particular, namely apartment complexes, that Fred Trump really contributed in. So if you're looking at the kind of the seeds of the Trump fortune, um, that is really where it, that it originally came from. So I'd like to dig into each of those seeds and, and figure out how exactly they sprouted to continue that metaphor. So going back to the, the uh, multi-block areas in Brooklyn that Fred Trump was making, so these were really like cookie-cutter houses. They had slight differences in the front. How exactly did they end up becoming so profitable? The reason that they became profitable, so some so really important context about developers and, and development projects on the scale that guys like Fred Trump and Donald Trump do, they are really, really speculative endeavors because you can get halfway through a huge construction project and then there, a recession comes along. And if that project is being financed by banks, then, and, and the developer defaults, those banks lose all their money. So banks are really aware of that, and governments are too. So the governments are in this position where they want their neighborhoods to be developed, but the big developers cannot get the financing to get the job done. So what the governments do is they come in and they provide insurance on the loans for both the acquisition of the property and the development of the property. So Fred Trump, what he was maybe better than anything else. One of the things that Fred Trump was really good at was figuring out how to structure those deals and to work the political process to make it happen. 
one of the ways that he really got a boost was after the Great Depression with the New Deal, when the Federal Housing Administration came in with this purpose of reigniting the growth of the U.S. housing industry. So they come in and they're guaranteeing mortgages now. And so that takes a lot of that risk out of the equation. That's exactly right. And so now Fred Trump can go in and say, look, if to, to any banks that are you know, interested, even potentially interested in funding his projects, he can say, look, the federal government, you take no risk by supporting my project. So then, and here's kind of where we start to get into um, kind of a different kind of nature of conduct. Because what you find is that, and this is not Fred Trump, this is just all in my, it's kind of in my analysis of it, because they're reading about, this, reading biographies of the Trump family and just kind of growing up around um, kind of development projects and cities and stuff like that, is that developers all have to use the political process in this regard. And so they go to the FHA and they say, look, we need you to guarantee this many, this, you know, this amount of mortgages on this property, so that makes it the, the property marketable to lenders. Well, so then what happens is the lenders will then give all this money to the developer, and let's say they give the developers $11 million to develop the property. Well, then the developer will then take a $4 million, I'm just making these statistics up, but a $4 million kickback, so to speak, in profits immediately, and then build the property with the remainder. And, and that's kind of that, that, that gray area where developers, in order to make a profit, um, that's kind of that gray area where, where they negotiate it in, in, in that regard. And this family was really, really good at that. And so one of the other ways that they're able to, to leverage this kind of relationship that they had was, as you mentioned, building these multifamily developments right near all the military bases and the naval bases around the country in World War II. Right. And so this is the reason that this matters so much for the Trump family is because it took Fred Trump from building these you know, large developments of single family homes, you know, kind of cookie cutter, to your point, he was called the Henry Ford of home building. And it took him into the multi-family market. So large buildings, large apartment buildings, as a, so the Trumps would then get rental income from these buildings, as opposed to just selling off each of the lots. So then if you look at Donald Trump, that's kind of where, because Donald Trump is not a single family home builder, right? He builds large projects. So that, I think, from reading his, the history of the, the Trump family, that's where he got that idea for projects of that scale. Yeah, I mean, he comes in, he sees his father's great success, and he gets this idea to go over into Manhattan and use that expertise that they had built up to move into a more upscale market. Exactly. That's exactly right. So if you're going to look at the contribution that Donald Trump made to the Trump family, which is very significant. Donald Trump is not just somebody who, 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 who rode on his father's coattails. Certainly his father you know, positioned Donald Trump to succeed to the extent that he did, but Donald Trump was really the one who, who then took it and ran with it. And what Donald Trump did was that as opposed to his father who focused on, even after you know, he, he moved into the, the multifamily market after World War II, He's still focused on that Brooklyn area, Coney Island area, Queens area for his projects. What Donald Trump's vision, and it really was a, a really brilliant vision, was to take that model and to apply it to luxury developments as opposed to kind of your, your middle income, low income development, and to take it to Manhattan across the river. Yeah, and how he did this was 
at first with the Commodore Hotel, which was named after Cornelius, the Commodore of Vanderbilt. This hotel was losing a ton of money. It got really, really seedy really quickly. And so Trump sees this and he sees how many people are flowing through the hotel. And he has this vision of increasing the occupancy rate. And so he takes it, he starts working with the New York government, trying to figure out how they could provide him with the funding and the financial covering so that he can get the financing he would need to develop this property. So this all ends up working out pretty well. Um, John, can you give us a little bit more information about the deal that he worked out with them? Sure. So, so just to, to give some, some, some context, this was in the mid-1970s. In the mid-1970s, we were going, there was a number of rolling recessions in the United States, and New York City in particular got caught in one of those. And when that happens, its funding dried up. So it, was, um, it didn't have a lot of options in terms of trying to promote quality development in, its, in, in Manhattan and, and, and the other bureaus. So what Donald Trump did, and so what happened was a lot of these neighborhoods fell into disrepair, if you will, and the Commodore Hotel was one of those. And so at the time, the Commodore Hotel, the, the occupancy rate was something like 50%. So half the hotel was filled. And it had become a really seedy hangout place with really seedy you know, commercial uh, renters in those, those first floor commercial uh, real uh, spaces in the, in the bottom of the hotel. And what Donald Trump saw was that, look, if we can bring this hotel up to the next level, it will make a lot of money. But he needed financing. So what he did is he went to the city, and the city worked out a deal to where they wouldn't have to put up the money up front, but they gave him a huge tax abatement, which then made the property palpable to lenders. And what they basically said is that, look, you don't have to pay taxes on this property for whatever. I can't remember what it was. I feel like I read that it was 50 years, but I'm not exactly sh sure what the case was. But the significance of that was that if the hotel, let's say, grossed $9 million in income, they would have to then pay $2 million in property taxes. So that wiped out whatever that is, 24 25% of what would otherwise be expenses that transformed it into profit. And that is the reason that Donald Trump was able to then get the financing to then complete that project. And that's huge. I mean, that 25% that cushion means that you can come in and totally undercut your competition on price. And all of a sudden, you've got a really profitable operation, which is the Grand Hyatt. That's exactly right. And it's a beautiful hotel. I mean, look, say what you will about Donald Trump, but his properties, I mean, he has done some really good, he's done a, an, an amazing job with, with some of his properties, and particularly the ones in Manhattan in between Trump Tower and the Commodore Hotel. So aside from Manhattan... Uh, he ends up moving on to Atlantic City. Gabby, do you want to talk to us a little bit about some of the, the properties that he's worked with there? Um, Trump has worked with all sorts of different properties. In Atlantic City, of course, he's most famous for his casinos. Um, he's also an owner in a lot of golf courses as well, all over the world, um, which is part of his image that he's trying to cultivate, right? Um, I've, I've heard he has quite the golf game, too. Yes, but that is speculative, um, so we're going to stay away from that. <laughs> Um, Everybody's golf game is speculative. <laughs> That's a great point. That's I golfed fair. yesterday. I can tell you that firsthand. Oh, yeah, I'm fantastic. I'm particularly good at the, the mini version of golf. <laughs> um, no, so Donald Trump, one of the things that he really works to do with all these businesses that are luxury businesses is he's attempting to build a brand for himself. And when I say attempting, I mean he has built a brand for himself. 
the actual value of that brand is up for debate, depending on who you ask. Of course, and that's this huge question surrounding him: is like, what is this guy worth? What is his brand worth? What are some of the figures that have been thrown out there? Oh, it's it's crazy. Um, so back in the earlier 2000s, there was a journalist named Tim O'Brien who pegged his net worth, Donald Trump's net worth, between 150 to 250 million. Donald strenuously objected to that and sued him twice. Um, but there was no real output from that. Um, recently, of course, Donald Trump has announced that he intends to run for the presidency. And when you do that, you have to declare your financial resources. Um, Donald Trump has said that he is worth $9 billion, or in his words, I'm really rich. I don't and, think and there's no disputing the, yeah. the latter there. <laughs> this guy is really, really rich. However, finding an exact number to, to back up that $9 billion has proven to be a bit problematic. And so you have all these other guys coming in and putting out different estimates. It's been super difficult. Um, one of the people who has been who have been the most rigorous in attempting to ascertain exactly how much he has is Forbes. Um, and they're putting his net worth right now at $4.1 billion, which is still a lot a lot of money. I mean, we're quibbling over essentially four and a half billion dollars. But really, once you get past a billion, it, uh, does it really matter? Yeah, how this much guy you is have? indisputably a billionaire. He is very, very, very wealthy. One of the Wait, most let, me, inter- let me ask you this. Let me ask Gabby a, a question. So, Gabby, when you look at from your interpretation of, of kind of how Donald Trump is operating in a business capacity nowadays, is it your interpretation from what you've read that he's focusing more now on licensing that Trump brand as opposed to, say, going back to his roots in developing or, you know, maybe like doing a celebrity apprentice show, which I, I know that I'd, it sounds like he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have the opportunity to do anymore. No, absolutely. Um, and that's part of the reason his brand is so important to him, because he's making the majority of his money right now from slapping his names on things and um, bringing in tenants using his persona which is probably why he went after Tim. It's definitely why he went after Tim O'Brien the first time, because he said that as a result of Tim O'Brien saying his net worth was lower than it was, um, he lost out on two really big business deals, um, especially a hotel, I believe, near something important in New York. I can't remember exactly what. And so what the theory there must be that, look, I am, and, and I'm like kind of paraphrasing maybe what Donald Trump's argument would be, is it that, look, I am trying to sell these luxury, whether it is golf courses or hotels or development. And so as a result of that, it's really important that people perceive me as extremely rich and therefore they can associate richness with, you know, using these facilities. Is, is that how you would, is that how you perceive um, that he looks at it? Absolutely. That is exactly how he's thinking about it. That is why he constantly refers to himself as luxurious, for example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there are, are a ton of Trump things out there that he's he's making money from. There's 515 different businesses that Trump lists himself as an executive for, and 276 of them have Trump in the name. And another 63 on top of that have a T in it somewhere that almost always stands for Trump. So this is clearly a guy who is building this character and trying to associate with this luxurious upscale personality. Um, Another way that I didn't even realize until I started doing research for the show that he makes a lot of money is through speaking fees. Oh, yeah. The guy made $1.75 million in speaking fees just between May of 2014 and March of 2015. That's insane. 
I, I wish they would pay me that much to publicly speak. Give, give some good industry focus <laughs> episodes. <laughs> Y'all. <laughs> Wait, let me, let me ask you an, a, another question, either of Gabby or Christine. So the one kind of thing that we've, we've jumped over that is such a critical piece of Donald Trump's story is when he almost, it's my understanding, and this is not based on a lot of research because I didn't actually look into this specific uh, point in his life very much, was in the mid-1990s, it's my understanding that he was on the verge of going broke or going bankrupt. Could, could, I wonder if you Several could, times. <laughs> yeah, if you can talk a little bit about that. So there's kind of a split between the personal bankruptcy and the business bankruptcy. Which so, Donald Trump would really like you to know. He never went personally bankrupt. And we will <laughs> emphasize that. But he did, however, get close, uh, particularly when the first of his businesses filed for bankruptcy. And this was the Trump Taj Mahal, which he acquired with mounting debt and, and mostly through high interest junk bonds, which in 1991 ended up being brought to business bankruptcy. And eventually he was able to turn the situation around and the Taj Mahal emerged from bankruptcy later in the year with Trump ceding about 50 percent of ownership to the bondholders in exchange for more favorable terms, lowered interest rates, more time to pay the debt off. So he was able to, to negotiate his way out of that. But this is one of four different times that one of his businesses has filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, most recently it was in 2009 with the Trump Entertainment Resorts. Um, he filed for bankruptcy. Um, he didn't really. He was leveraged up to the hilt. Um, and when the, I mean, this is of course during the global financial crisis. And when the banks asked him to pay back his debt, Trump said that there was a force majeure, I believe is the way it's pronounced, which is basically an act of God occurred, which is the global financial crisis. I guess maybe arguably, mm-hmm. I don't know. French term written into the contract. Um, and. The banks, instead of going all the way through with the lawsuit, they ended up settling with him because um, I suppose it must have been easier. Um, well, you know, you know what they say about about lending that if you owe your bank a million dollars, you your bank controls you. But if you own your bank ten million or a hundred million dollars, you control your bank. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. But anyway, I mean, I think that points to the takeaway from this whole episode, which is that even though this is a guy whose name is recognized for a whole host of things from The Apprentice to Miss Universe or just for being a very strong personality, he is a really, really smart guy. And he's had a lot of business success due to his ability to negotiate. To pivot, really. Yeah, let me say that my takeaway is very similar to to, to yours, is that when I went into this, when we talked about this last week that we were going to cover this, and I started reading about the Trump family, it's that it transformed Donald Trump in my head from this kind of silly, I think he wears a toupee, toupee-wearing caricature into this really formidable, intelligent, um, savvy, uh, ambitious businessman that has also had to do kind of unsa- slightly, arguably unsavory things on the side to make these deals happen, but they're the same things that every developer has to do. So he was just been better than most other people in his industry. So it's just given me a much deeper appreciation for, regardless of what anybody may or may not think about Donald Trump, and particularly in this political season, it's just given me a much better appreciation that this man does bring something to the table, certainly in a business capacity. 
And he's not about to fade out of the spotlight anytime soon, especially, as you mentioned, with this presidential run. And regardless of the man's public persona or our own personal opinions of him, one thing is definitely clear that this is a very smart, ambitious businessman, and he's got a really interesting story behind him. So, Gabby, John, I want to thank you guys so much for helping me tell this story today. And also, I want to throw it out there for our listeners that Gabby's going to be working with us on a bunch of episodes going forward, and we are super excited about that. So we're looking forward to next time. Cool on, everyone.